Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we answer many listener questions and spend a great deal of time talking about the midnight ride of Jack Jewett. The poet Longfellow immortalized Paul Revere, of course, in the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Uh, But Jack Jewett was maybe a more extraordinary messenger who got the word to the governor's council and Jefferson in Virginia that the British are coming. The British are coming. We also talked about Edward Curtis and about Anton Johansson and his nine-page book list. Jefferson loved to offer lists of books that young people should read, particularly young men, and he made his library available under certain very controlled conditions to people that he thought might treat it with full respect. This week's episode is devoted to answering listener questions. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, we received a question from a Mr. Don Powell. He reports listening to a county commission meeting where several hundred citizens were expressing their displeasure with the last-minute health department mandate for school children. And he tells of a citizen who quoted you by saying, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. I believe this is a translation of a Latin phrase that you used in a letter you wrote to James Madison on January 30th, 1787. Am I correct? Uh, Yes, that is correct. Um, The Latin from which it comes, which I also quote in in the letter to my closest friend, James Madison, is malo periculosam libertatem quam quietam servitutem, which means malo means I prefer, I prefer a dangerous liberty or a chaotic liberty to quam over against quietam servitutem, to a quiet servitude. Uh, this is a Latin phrase that goes back to the Roman Republic, and I'm, I'm quoting it there. But what I mean by it is that if you have to err on one side or the other, you err on the side of disruption and disorder and chaos and uh, a little bit of democratic excess, because liberty is so important that I would rather have it slightly in excess in the minds of the people than for them to be such conformists that they accept a kind of quiet servitude and all governments will move towards tyranny if they can get away with it. Uh, In this letter to Madison, I'm emphatically saying a little messy democracy is better than quiet autocracy in which the people are intimidated by their government. In, In the same letter, I try to create a taxonomy of government systems, and really there are three. One is essentially no government, anarchy, and that's what we see amongst the Indians of the West, for example. No formal constitutions, no penal colonies, no uh, judicial systems. They, They live according to custom with almost no government at all, so something like anarchy. The second is tyranny, which is most governments in history, too much government, even the British government, not in my time so much, but but certainly in the 17th century was an autocracy. Uh, And then you have that kind of servitude that people live in uh, awe and fear of government. And then there's the third, which is what we're trying to do, which is a minimal government, the smallest government that can do the work, a maximum of personal liberty, 
but understanding that we, we can't be like the Indians. We need more government than that. Our habits are European. Our numbers are, are, are too great in population for that sort of anarchy. But, but the Indians of the West remind us that it is possible to live without government. And so we should strain in that direction rather than in the other direction, sir. I believe that the concern is that this is an issue that involves public health and safety. Uh, how do you feel about your words being used to perhaps cause less public health and safety? Well, I think you have to look at it this way, that my idea of America is that the people will be enlightened. They will educate themselves. Uh, we will have public educational systems. We will create enlightened citizens, and then they will govern themselves so that ideally you wouldn't need any mask orders or any other public health uh, restrictions. Uh, you would simply uh, have a population that would know what to do. That you know, They would listen to the experts, and they would think for themselves. They would have the freedom to either comply or not to comply, but they would cheerfully comply because they would understand that these health measures are salutary and good. But whenever you make them coercive and say, you must do this, then people get restive, and they should get restive. They should, they should chafe against too much government. That's the whole point of this letter, that chafing against too much government, even when the government might be right, might be enlightened, might, might know the better path. But in America, our genius is that we are skeptical, even derisive, of top-down government authority. So I would defend to the death the right of people to resist these measures because that's the heart of why we are the freest people in the world. But what I hear, Mr. Jefferson, is you expect people to, to do the right thing. Of course. Uh, public health measures are important. They should be voluntarily agreed to. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You're welcome, sir. Hey, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. Today we are joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the noted author and historian, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and good to speak with you today, sir. Good to be with you, my friend, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I don't know at what point we retire that. Uh, well, you know, that's interesting because we got a letter about that. And what did the letter suggest? Well, it suggested that perhaps it was it was time to retire that. The, the, the gentleman who wrote, whose name is in front of me right now, I'll find it, said that he thought I did an okay job and how come I was semi-permanent? What he doesn't know is that is a long-standing term of endearment given to me by you and it would nearly break my heart if you took it away. So there it is. Well, two things about that, sir. First of all, when I moved back to North Dakota, I guess it's 17 years ago now, it seems like uh, that's a long time. I came into your studio and I said, Let's work together on a range of projects, but in the short term, would you be willing to fill in for a couple of weeks as the 
um, host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And in your naivete, you said, yeah, a couple of weeks. Why, how hard would, <laughs> would that be? And now that's 17 years later, you've taken a couple of sabbaticals, but essentially, uh, let's say 15 times 52, you do the math. That's about 750 programs that you have hosted. But the reason I don't change it, not only is it a term of affection, going back to that moment, but at the minute I call you the permanent host, it's going to go to your head. You know, Jefferson said power corrupts you. Then you're going to be dictating terms. You're going to be striking. <laughs> you're going to be demanding pay raises. You're going to change the name of the program. You're going to want more marketing time. You know, the, the, as long as you feel that you are on probation, that this could be this could be snapped away from you at any time. Oh, uh, you know me too well. It's Scott Newcomer who uh, who sent that in, sticking up for me. And Scott, bless your heart. But uh, uh, now you know the truth. Yeah, you're going to be saying, "Oh, I will only work on Tuesdays and only for half an hour." You know, just I mean, I don't think people know how you know Lord Acton was right. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so I think just you're knowing that there's kind of a sword of Damocles hanging over your head that that you have to comply in some minimal sense to the to the structure of this program. I think it has kept you humble. Um, and you know, I, I'm just afraid of what might happen. I know I've seen some of your tyrannical impulses. Oh no. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that that vote of confidence in my character. And with that, <laughs> yes. let's move on. I, I have a, a, we're behind. We've had so many interesting shows in the past couple of months, and guests, and um, it was so much fun to speak with David Nicandri last week. But we've got a backlog of letters, so. I, I, I have a, a number of them that are addressed to you, and I'm going to begin, if I may. Certainly. This one comes from Richard Johnson. It's a good place to start. He says, I've been listening to the Jefferson Hour for many years, and it's become an important part of my education in history. A week or so ago, I was moved by your conversation about a young woman's quest to learn about liberty through books. And, um, and this was uh, probably a month or two ago. But then he writes about his grandfather's experience. Johan Anton Johansson came as a child to the U.S. from Sweden in the early 1900s. The family settled, settled in Butler County, PA, became farmers. And as he grew to young manhood, he realized that he would never have the financial resources to go to college, but he loved learning. So he found a professor at the University of Pittsburgh and asked what books he should read to become an educated man. That interview led to a nine-page, single-spaced, typewritten list of books ranging from the classics through literature, criticism, history, natural sciences, and more. As he was able throughout his life, he acquired as many of them as he could I remember as a small boy marveling at the shelves filled with these wonders. And after he died, his library was scattered throughout the family. I got only two, the Durant story of philosophy and the Thousand and One Nights. So the story of the woman from Colorado spoke to my heart. Keep doing what you do. It's important for the soul of the country. High praise and thank you, sir. Well, the autodidact, that is the self-taught person who maybe doesn't have the advantage of a formal education, but who has taken upon her or himself to read books, uh, to get educated, to learn things. Uh, I have special uh, respect for such people because it shows such determination and enterprise. And so 
wonderful letter, and, and thanks for sending it. You know, what really jumped out to me, and I thought that uh, would give you a chance to comment on that, is the fact that he went to a learned man, a University of Pittsburgh professor, and asked for a list of books and got a nine-page response. And for the sake of this letter, I know you've told this story before, but Jefferson did the same thing. Yes, yeah, so he, uh, he did it for young people, but he also received that kind of mentoring at the hands of William Small and um, George Wythe. But then for the rest of his life, um, you know, he got around 1,300 letters per year. Um, but the ones he loved most were somebody saying, you know, tell me what to read, or I'm thinking of becoming a, a lawyer, what, how should I prepare, or how do I become a, a complete Southern gentleman? And, and Jefferson would go way out of his way in an age before word processing to, to write out a list of 100 books that they should read, or 1,000. You know, he loved this role. And I would love to have that nine-page letter. So if, if the person who sent this is listening... Um, and that document exists. I would I would give a lot to have a scan or a photocopy of that uh, set of recommendations, and we could actually do a program on this, David, because I'm guessing that it would be pretty formidable looking in the 21st century. Uh, it might not have been formidable when that was produced, but today I think we would gulp and think, how many of those books have we read? The gentleman's name is Richard Johnson. And Richard, if you are listening, we'd love to hear from you. And I think that would be a very interesting uh, discussion. You know, I have in front of me a, a website saying the 1,001 books everyone should read before they die. Well, that's a lot of books, for one thing. You know, I'm a slow reader, so I can read you know, 50 books a year, maybe 100 at best. So that's 10, that's 10 years of hard reading and none of the reading that I have to do. Uh, but I, I get that, and there, you know, there are shorter lists of books every American should have read, books every well-educated person should have read. Uh, a man named E.D. Hirsch published a book in the 1980s or 90s on cultural literacy, and he, he felt that we were losing our cultural literacy, which is certainly true. Um, the question is what we should do about it and how much does it matter. But he, he then made lists of books that every well-educated person should have read from, say, Thomas Paine's Common Sense to James Joyce's uh, exquisite novel, Ulysses. Those, those books always fascinate me. Uh, and I always wonder about people who do it. And I know some people, for example, who will decide to read all of the Pulitzer Prize winning books in the 20th century. And they'll just go through. And some of them uh, haven't held up very well. And others continue to be classics. Or someone will read the complete works of Mark Twain or the complete works of Dostoevsky. I like that. I'm drawn to that idea of reading the complete works. I'm actually, at the moment, trying to work my way through the complete works of William Manchester. That's someone I want to read everything he ever wrote. But I love these lists. And even if I don't uh, pursue them, David, um, they, give me a, they, they give me thoughts about what to read. So just in this list that I'm looking at at the moment, number 387 is Cancer Ward by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I remember reading it, oh, I suppose I was 19 years old and my parents had it. I think it had been a Book of the Month Club book. And so, yes, but also then 397 is The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. I have it. <laughs> I've never read it. How about this, 399, 100 Years of Solitude. I, I've never read it. It's said to be one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's magical realism. Uh, I know people who regard it as their favorite book. There it is. 
I've never read it. So these lists not only are inspiring, but to a certain degree, they're also um, humiliating. We have another letter from a listener, Scott Blake, who talks about a book you brought up on the show, Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. He says it made him think of the Barry Lopez quote that has been mentioned several times on the Jefferson Hour. How far can you go out and still come back? Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher is a terrific read. It's a very interesting story along with a lot of historical perspective. And as you know, I've been doing this exhibit. I've written an exhibit for the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University on Roosevelt and Edward S. Curtis. They were friends. Uh, There's a wonderful set of connections. uh, And the the exhibit is called uh, The Rough Rider and the Shadow Catcher. Uh, Rough Rider, of course, Roosevelt. After his time in Cuba, Shadow Catcher is a name that natives gave to Curtis because he could take this box and push a button and suddenly uh, could capture an image of somebody. And uh, I remember being in a dark room for the first time when I was around 13 and being uh, so overwhelmed by the magic of photography that I could hardly believe that such chemistry existed. So this is an exhibit that will premiere uh, sometime in, in the year 2022. It's been postponed because of the pandemic, but uh, Roosevelt became a patron of Curtis. Uh, Roosevelt had Curtis uh, photograph the Roosevelt children at Sagamore Hill. Curtis made a photographic portrait of TR that uh, many people regarded as the best presidential photograph of the 26th president of the United States. Roosevelt wrote the foreword for Curtis's 20-volume uh, North American Indian project. Uh, Roosevelt intervened when snobs at Columbia called into question um, Curtis's talents and and his credentials. Roosevelt intervened again when Curtis produced a revisionist theory of what happened at the Little Bighorn, and Roosevelt cautioned him not to get crosswise with the idolatry of George Armstrong Custer or crosswise with Elizabeth Bacon Custer, who lived 57 years after the martyrdom of her husband. So this relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and Edward S. Curtis is really remarkable, and I've had such joy uh, working with this. Uh, my friend Robert Winquist of Seattle is actually lending us six original Curtis prints, uh, and the Cardozo family of Minneapolis has supplied me with 50 exquisite reproductions of Curtis prints. Uh, this is just, uh, and, and you're working on uh, the music. I've obtained some of the cylinder disc recordings that Curtis did all across uh, the American West, and they are at the University of Indiana. It ties in with your larger project on Francis Densmore, who was also recording Native American sound at about the same time. So it's a huge thing, and and the best book for anyone to read um, as a starter book on Edward S. Curtis is Timothy Egan's Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. Yes, and, and Scott, thanks for the letter, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. He says his daughter works on Capitol Hill for the National Indian Gaming Association. He's going to pass the recommendation on to her. Right now, sir... We need to take a short break. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson or maybe Jefferson's Times. This week, we are looking at correspondence, questions sent to us by Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners. And we talked books in the first segment, and now I'm going to move into something else. And that is a letter from Deanna Wallach. The most standout request from her is, please, a Jack Jewett episode. She says that she's wanted to drop a line, and thanks for the length and breadth of your work, which has been keeping me from tipping headfirst into solitary madness while I attempt an absurdly ambitious painting project this summer, which reminded me the first time I heard the Thomas Jefferson Hour was on my local public radio station, Prairie Public, and this was, it had to be, 20 years ago, maybe more. I was up on a ladder, balancing in a way I never should have, trying to get at the eaves and painting my house. And I had an old Walkman with a radio in it and earbuds. And boy, that was just great, you know, because I could listen to public radio while I painted. And up came this show with this guy who was pretending to be Thomas Jefferson. And I went, what? What is this? How come I've never heard of that? So that's the first time. So I can relate. I don't know what kind of painting project you're doing, but she does ask that we do some discussion about Jack Jewett. And I really didn't know much about him. And I started to look into it. Now, maybe you do, Clay, but this is a fascinating story. Well, first, I did not know the story of you painting on the ladder, but I know what you were thinking as you climbed down that ladder. You thought, someday... Possibly. I'll be named as the semi-permanent guest host of this program. I could I could host this program. Exactly. Exactly. That's just, that's just, exactly. Right. John I quit Jewett. and sat down and daydreamed about it. You know, so we think of the midnight ride of Paul Revere, which is a line from Longfellow. And the reason that we remember Paul Revere, who was a silversmith, um, is that Longfellow wrote his poem about this. He could easily have written the story of Jack Jewett, although Paul Revere fits into the Iambic pentameter line a little bit more easily. Jack Jewett is the Paul Revere of Virginia. And so when all of this was happening, when the British were about to invade Monticello, Jack Jewett heard what was going on in the tavern. And so he got on his horse and because he knew the territory, he he took back trails to Monticello. And the story is that he got terribly cut up. It was in the middle of the night. He's, he's, he's galloping through these forests. He's getting hit by these, the shrubbery and, and, and the limbs of the tree. He exhausted his horse, but he was able to get to Monticello in time to warn Jefferson that the, the British are coming. The British are coming. He didn't have to put any lanterns up in the old North Church. Uh, and Jefferson um, gave him wine, of course, and, and welcomed him and, and made sure that he got a meal. And then Jefferson, with some leisure, secured some of his papers, put some of his uh, silver, silver plates, silver cutlery, and so on, under floorboards. He did a number of things to prevent more significant losses than eventually occurred by the invasion at Monticello. And then at the last minute, as the British dragoons were coming up the hill on their horses, uh, Jefferson and his family um, withdrew, let's put it, to a nearby mountain, Carter's Mountain, and uh, and avoided arrest. Uh, this story, the, the first part of the story, is the heroic Jack Jewett story. Uh, the second part of the story is probably the most ignominious 
moment in Jefferson's career because he was then accused of cowardice and fleeing and, and so on. And this this haunted him to a certain degree for the rest of his life. He was widely accused of having been a coward, although it's hard to believe that um, that he didn't make the right choice. What did you expect him to do, to, to take a musket uh, and to try to hold off the, the British invasion force there by himself? But at any rate, that's a short version of, of this story, which is a really interesting one. But what makes it so interesting, David, is that this other story, the Paul Revere story, owes entirely to Longfellow. If Longfellow hadn't written the poem, we probably wouldn't know the name Paul Revere. You know, you dig into this story, and and it you know it was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton who was ordered by Cornwallis to go to Charlottesville and and not just capture. Jefferson, but the whole government. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Uh, everyone read that poem, at least in my time in grade school, had to memorize pieces of it uh, in some instances. And it's a justly famous poem, but it 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 gives Paul Revere a place in American memory that he probably doesn't fully deserve. Well, back to Jewett. Um, he was 27 years old at the time. He stood six feet four, weighed 220 pounds. And that would be a giant of a man for that time or any time, really. He wrote on June 3rd, 1781, when he heard the sound of approaching cavalry. And he suspected that the cavalry was marching to Charlottesville to capture the members of Virginia's government. He knew that the legislature was completely undefended, so that's when he took off on this 40-mile ride. As you said, he was all cut up and injured on the ride. Yeah, it's a great story, and it just show, there are probably other stories of, of this sort. So what happened was that the, the revolutionaries set up committees of correspondence, which was basically the foundation of what would later become the Articles of Confederation, and then they met in the First and Second Continental Congress. During the Second Continental Congress, Jefferson was asked to write the Declaration of Independence, and they had post riders. They had essentially an early version of the Pony Express. They had these rapid riders that would take messages from one colony to the next or from one governor to another. Um, during the war, while Jefferson was governor, he had these post riders going to and from the Carolinas to bring him back news about the British invasion of the of the southern colonies. And so uh, there are probably 50 such stories, but Jewett is a, is a remarkable version of it, and particularly uh, the sacrifice. You know, you don't, and I mean no disrespect, but you, you don't see Paul Revere all cut up and damaged um, going on these back routes in the middle of the night in, in Virginia, which was much more primitive in its infrastructure than Massachusetts, tells you a good deal about the patriotism of Jewett. Supposedly, Tarleton reached uh, plantations of Castle Hill, which was Dr. Thomas Walker's home, around dawn. And, and the story goes is that Dr. Walker prepared an elaborate breakfast, including alcohol, for Tarleton and his men in order to allow more time for Jefferson and the legislature to get warning of, the, of this impending uh, capture. We don't know historically if that's accurate or not, but it's a great story. Yeah, this is uh, the time of the world that's basically um, encapsulated in Jane Austen novels, where you would have an invasion force and you really could say, gentlemen, it's it's uh, it's early. Let me serve you a breakfast. I mean, you must be tired from your long march. And 
and that these things actually occurred and people would take tea and you know and and opposing officers would dine together and and they would salute each other and they would release each other um, under their own recognizance because they were officers and gentlemen this is a whole uh, sort of 18th century pre-modern view of war that no longer obtains although there are moments of it in our time and so when you read accounts like this of you know Tarleton gets to Monticello Jefferson has just left they bully a few of the enslaved people they drink some of the wine at Monticello, but Tarleton says to his 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 dragoons, "Don't damage this place. This is a beautiful this is a beautiful home. You know, we'll we'll take the things we need, but but let's not be doing any any destruction or vandalism here." Jefferson actually probably regretted that in certain sense because that helped um, his enemies, led by Patrick Henry, to say we need an investigation of Jefferson's conduct. In other words, if if they'd burned several of Jefferson's outbuildings, he probably would have been less suspect in the eyes of his detractors. But if they if they come to Jefferson's house after, you know, burning Richmond, uh, and then they leave Monticello alone, that's not going to redound to Jefferson's credit amongst his fellow patriots. They're going to say, why should he be treated with such exquisite restraint when that restraint has not been shown for routine plantations in the James River Valley? Let me read from Wikipedia. It says, Jefferson did not rush, although he sent his wife and daughters to his friend John Cole's plantation about 14 miles away. He had breakfast with the legislators before making arrangements to leave, including spending two hours gathering his papers together. When Christopher Hudson rode to Monticello to warn of the British imminent arrival, Jefferson continued his preparations but sent a horse outside his estate for a quick escape. Yeah, so Jefferson, so he was really worried about his papers. Some of them were, of course, sensitive, uh, so he didn't want them to fall into the hands of, of, of the British. But he also just, he was a collector of paper. He was supremely organized. He was essentially had the soul of an archivist. Uh, and so he's he he had this elaborate system of preserving papers by sewing them into um, um, bags that had been oiled, so sort of an oil cloth that would uh, would keep them from um, from disintegrating from, uh, from being dried out. And so he has all this sort of preservationist instinct, and he's about to be arrested. And who knows what happens if he's arrested by Tarleton and others? But but instead uh, he waits to the last minute. Uh, and is securing papers so that the, whatever else happens, that his precious manuscripts uh, will not be destroyed or burned or fall into the hands of the British. And as we know, then Jewett, he wrote on to uh, then the Swan Tavern, which was owned by his father, where most of the legislators were staying. And they decided to flee and reconvene in Stanton, about 35 miles to the west, uh, in three days but his warning allowed most of the legislators to escape. That's uh, amazing. So it's a great story. Um, and Tarleton is a great figure. Um, it's just, it's, it's an 18th century story. It's a story that you can't imagine happening today. Uh, but it somehow, um, it, it's somehow delightful and very life affirming that there was a, there was some gentlemanliness at the heart of these wars, and I remind everyone that that Jefferson wrote a letter to Patrick Henry, who was then the governor of Virginia, and, and basically Jefferson um, adumbrated, hinted at what would become the Geneva Conventions uh, almost 200 years later, and and he said, you know, it's in our interest to humanize 
war as much as possible and to take some of the barbarism out of it. Impossible to do entirely, but we could have exchange of prisoners on an equal basis. We should treat prisoners um, with civility and should not torture or or damage them in any way. Um, farmers should be exempted from serving in the military during planting and harvests. Uh, other key industries that um, that are important for the continuity of the economy should be exempted and there should be provisions for conscientious objectors. And so Jefferson is basically laying out the Geneva Conventions or the UN Universal Declaration of Rights uh, in the 1770s in this letter to Patrick Henry. I wonder what Patrick Henry thought of this letter, but it just makes me love Jefferson all the more that he would he would say, yeah, okay, we get it, you know, war is war, but there must be ways for us to um, restrain the wolf um, in the human character. And if you think of Mi Lai or Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo or um, uh, rendition during the, the war on terror or torture, waterboarding, um, all, in my opinion, violations of the Geneva Conventions, uh, you realize how uh, how futile some of those codes can be in times of grave emergency, but how important they are because they're standards against which our barbaric behavior has to be judged. Well, to cap this story off, and again, thanks to Deanna Wallach for bringing it to my attention, um, the Virginia legislature passed a resolution to honor him uh, they resolved to give him a pair of pistols and a sword in gratitude. Uh, but I can't help but think, you know, if if it wasn't for Jewett and his 40-mile middle-of-the-night ride, there's every possibility Jefferson would have been captured. And what would have happened then? Hard to know. Jefferson had a telescope, um, and he had it trained on Charlottesville, and according to the tradition— uh, he kept doing all the things that he, that he was doing in preparation for the uh, invasion uh, until he saw the redcoats coming up the mountain through the telescope. And then that's when he thought, maybe it's time for me to, uh, to plan my exit here. So maybe he would have figured it out. We don't know. Um, you know Jefferson is Jefferson. Uh, he's a very ingenious fellow. But I, I, I certainly don't mean to detract from Jewett's heroic act. And I think we need a Longfellow for him more than, in my opinion, uh, for uh, the silversmith Paul Revere. I guess my question is, Clay, is that, you know, th this was in 1781. And I I think of Franklin's quote, will we either hang together or we shall hang separately. If, if they had caught Jefferson, what would the British have done to him? Yeah, I think Jefferson said, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor at the end of the Declaration of Independence. Um, they did um, burn some of his outlying farms and, and took off more than 30 enslaved men and women. Uh, Jefferson, there's an enormous financial loss there. They burned tobacco barns. They burned buildings. Uh, they burned fences. Uh, and they, um, you know, they took uh, more than 30 um, enslaved people, going rate for a, an enslaved person at the time was between $500 and $1,000. So, I mean, just think of the, the loss there. And Jefferson later said if they, if they had done it and set them free, I wouldn't have uh, 
lost any sleep over it, but they didn't. They said that he they kept them on these ships in the harbor, and many of the of the enslaved people got uh, illnesses and died, some from smallpox, and that therefore the British were just hypocrites in all of this. So he did suffer. If they had caught him, I'm guessing they would not have uh, executed him. But it's possible that he would have been taken over to Britain for a star chamber trial of some sort. It's possible that they would have hanged him. Um, I doubt this, uh, but that was certainly something that could not be ruled out. He would have been imprisoned, and then exchanged. Probably he would have been he would have been imprisoned at least briefly, and then there would have probably been an exchange of officers. Uh, that was already pretty routine at at the time. But I don't think Jefferson felt this. I think Jefferson felt. First of all, they're not going to get me. Uh, but secondly, uh, that a person of his stature would probably get a, a pretty serious slap on the wrist, but the chances of it turning into death um, were, were, were pretty low at that point. Well, he rode his horse every day, and he was in the woods ready to go and knew the, knew the countryside. So I'm not surprised that was how he made his escape. So then they go off to Poplar Forest, his other place. The, build, the house wasn't built yet, but there was an overseer's cottage where they were able to stay. When he got there, he fell from his horse and broke his wrist. Um, it was the most humiliating moment of his life, almost certainly, although when the Sally Hemings story broke in 1802, that might have been a rival. Uh, he was now um, being accused of being a coward. Resolutions of investigation were being planted in the Virginia House of Delegates. Um, there was widespread gossip and, and rumor-mongering about his lack of male uh, fortitude. Um, he should have stayed longer to watch the peaceful transfer of power between himself and the next governor. He basically abdicated uh, without really informing anybody. Uh, this was not uh, his, his best moment, let's say, and then he fell and damaged himself. And But then he's at Poplar Forest uh, licking his wounds and, and healing from the wrist. And there he wrote much of uh, his only book, Notes on the State of Virginia. So again, a delightful um, story here that even in extremity, even at maybe the lowest moment of his life, Jefferson was so well-organized and so much a an efficiency guru that he he didn't waste his time in bitterness at Poplar Forest. He sat down and wrote out a manuscript of what became an American classic. Jack Jewett, a great story. Sir, we need to take a short break, but we'll return to this conversation and correspondence in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation about Thomas Jefferson, all things Jefferson. Clay, I, I welcome you back, and if we might, I have some housekeeping I'd like to do. There's a number of questions here for you and the things that you do. Uh, Todd Callaby writes, wanting to know about this fall's Constitution course. Is it over? Is it too late? No, it's it's coming, so it'll be in November. I just wrote the description of it. It's either on the website or soon will be. We're going to read a, a, a book called Decision in Philadelphia, which is a great, about a man named Collier, which is a great sort of classic of, of description of the, of the making of the U.S. Constitution. And it's going to be a five-week course. It's sort of organized around a series of how. How did the Constitution come to be? How was the Constitution interpreted? How has the Constitution been amended? And then how might we change the Constitution or rewrite the Constitution to meet the challenges and exigencies of the 21st century? So, uh, yes, it, uh, it will be. And I think it starts sometime in like mid-November. People can go to the Jefferson Hour site at jeffersonhour.com and probably get the details there. We also got an inquiry about this class from Kathy Kuhn, who evidently took one of your courses last winter online and enjoyed it very much. I love doing this. So this, you know, this is, um, I don't know how it came about, uh, but uh, the idea of online courses suddenly struck me and they've been just wonderfully successful. Not only have they worked as an, as an alternative means of, of spreading the good news of the humanities, but it's been so satisfying, David. I've taught Hamlet. Uh, I'm just finishing the Aeneid uh, by Virgil. Uh, the Constitution, I think I've done twice now. This will be a third. There was a course on the literature and history of pandemics. There was a course on the Enlightenment. People are asking for another version. Um, it's just a path I could not have expected. I've also had the chance because of the pandemic to do more writing. And I've got my new North Dakota book has been out for um, a few weeks now. So lots of things were made possible by the pandemic. If I were still traveling that much, it would be harder to find the time to sit uh, and you need a library, of course, even in the age of the internet, uh, to write the books that I've been writing. I have a couple more sort of softball questions for you, things that I know you're going to enjoy answering. One comes from Carrie Ayers uh, along this same line, simply stating, planning any tours? She's been on a tour. I wish her well. We hope to see her again. Yes, so back-to-back um, -back Lewis and Clark tours, the classical summer Lewis and Clark tour, uh, we're going to Cuba in February, assuming that we can go to Cuba in February. The one I'm really wanting to push at the moment is Steinbeck in California, John Steinbeck's California. That's in March. We go to Monterey. Uh, we go to a whole range of just incredibly beautiful places, and we're doing a little add-on trip this time uh, on Route 66 to, to look down into the Central Valley from Tehachapi Pass and to go to Weed Patch, the, the, the uh, U.S relocation site uh, near Bakersfield, California. So that's coming. Then we're going to France in November, um, which is uh, something that is just uh, pure joy for me. So yes, there are tours and you can find out about all of them at our website, jeffersonhour.com. Here's another question. This one comes from Howard Slaughter. 
He is officiating a wedding near Monticello in October and wants to bring some Thomas Jefferson thoughts into the service. I hope we're going to get this to you quickly enough. I want to use the four things that Clay mentioned in a podcast. I think it was something like plant a garden, have a dinner party. Can you help me with the correct quote? Also, any other suggestions that Jefferson would give a couple on their wedding day? Thanks. Jefferson said that his 10 years of marriage to Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson were 10 years of uncheckered happiness. And so I would hope that uh, the idea of uncheckered happiness could be part of uh, the discourse on that day. Jefferson believed that the only way to get through any friendship or any intimate relationship was through artificial good humor. In other words, you must you must be patient, you must defer, you must uh, accommodate, uh, you need to avoid a direct conflict, you, you need to uh, yield. And since he was a sexist, uh, he believed that women should yield more often than men, but I think we can universalize that and to... Uh, and to make it less patriarchal. As to what I said about this, you know, I, I don't really remember, but grow a tomato, certainly. Grow something that you will ingest. I think that's um, certainly central to the Jeffersonian enterprise. Write letters, actual letters, uh, letters that you put, you fold, put in an envelope and stamp and send. Uh, that's certainly uh, part of, of Jefferson's notion. To uh, do small acts of, of kindness and generosity for your children, your family, and your friends that in sort of a variation, David, on, on John Lennon, the love you take is equal to the love you make, that that kind of generosity of spirit inevitably pays off. And the art of, of being a, a, a great gift giver is one of the great arts, um, which I try to, uh, to practice myself. And of course, read, uh, read books. Jefferson was never without a book. Uh, and he felt, in fact, when he went to bed in an age before electricity, he, he read something of a moral nature, um, something that would that would be ripe for reflection because he said, if I wake up in the night, you know, it's hard to light a candle. You don't want to have to call a, a servant in to do this for you uh, or to stir up the fire. But if you've been reading something before you went to sleep that that is provocation to uh, reflection, then you can do that uh, before you fall back asleep, um, and then maybe bathe your feet in ice water every morning. I'm not sure how many marriages could hold up under that regimen. <laughs> you know, we have two more, and then I think we have cleaned house, sir. One from Benjamin Howe asking about the legislative initiative. He says, I have not heard about it for a while, uh, and he hopes there's a little TLC available, and this doesn't die on the vine. Wonderful. Well, we I think we have 15 states, um, uh, which is amazing, and the U.S. Congress. Uh, my good friend Michael Kay of the Norfolk area said, well, if we're doing this, every member of Congress should have one. And we were able to find a way to get every member of Congress a copy of Become, uh, Repairing Jefferson's America. So more states, you know, um, if, if, if you're interested and you're listening and you want this book to go to every legislator in your state, uh, we can make that happen. And, uh, you know, we make the books available at cost. Uh, we take no profit of any sort from this. And then we do a lot of the logistical work to help figure out how to uh, drop ship them from our, the publisher to um, the legislative offices and so on. And I should say, David, that, that, that my book, um, The Language of Cottonwoods, Essays on the Future of North Dakota is going to go to every member of the North Dakota legislature. Uh, so think of that, that the dean uh, from Minneapolis uh, read the book. He's a North Dakotan. He said, this is, this is a really important book. 
Um, every every legislator in North Dakota should read this book. And I said, well, I hope they do. And he said, I'm going to make that happen. And so we now, I have in my foyer here, um, up here on the New Enlightenment Radio Network, I have uh, eight boxes of my book uh, just waiting for me to sign them. And then they will find their way to the uh, legislative offices here in Bismarck. Well, that leads right into this question. Mike Cox wrote, he says, I have two questions. First, how can I get an autographed copy of Clay's latest book, The Language of Cottonwoods? Easily done. Um, Go to Jefferson Hour site. You can write to us at Dakota Sky. Just say what you have in mind, what you'd like in the signature, or if you want it personalized. Then we'll send you the book with an invoice, and you can just send us a check. Simple enough. And his other question actually is for President Jefferson, but I'm going to let you answer this. He says, Mr. President, in 1806, did you instruct Zebulon Pike to explore past the border between the United States and Spanish territory in what's now southwest Colorado? No. So Jefferson had almost nothing to do with the Zebulon Pike journeys. In 1804 and 5, Pike went up the Mississippi uh, close to its source, uh, but he did so uh, under the uh, instructions of James Wilkinson, our senior uh, army officer in the American West. And then a year later, in 1806, uh, he went to the source waters of the Arkansas River and was trying to sort of figure out the Canadian and Red River systems uh, but then he was definitely beyond the boundaries of the Louisiana Purchase. He was in um, uh, the northern Spanish, northern Mexican uh, zone and was arrested by Spanish troops, sent, taken all the way to Chihuahua and beyond uh, under house arrest. He was eventually escorted to the Louisiana border and told never to come back, lucky to escape with his life in some respects. Uh, so Jefferson had nothing to do with either one of them. Now, maybe maybe he understood some of this, you know, that we, there may be secret correspondence. I don't think so. And remember that when Lewis was in St. Louis uh, preparing for his journey up the Missouri, he wrote to Jefferson in the fall of 1803. So he was going to leave in May of 1804. And he said, you know, there's a lot of time between now and May. Maybe I'll just go on a solo ride towards Santa Fe and take a look around. And Jefferson wrote back, instantly when he got it and said, no way, no, your mission is singular. I do not want you doing that because he knew that if Lewis went into the Spanish holdings in the Southwest, he could easily get himself arrested or worse. And he thought there would be an ignominious end to the Lewis and Clark expedition. So Jefferson was sensitive about uh, too much penetration into, into lands claimed by Spain. I think he had nothing to do with Zebulon Pike's voyages, but it's at least possible that he was aware of some of this. We have a couple more questions I'd like to get in in the few minutes we have left. This one comes from Jay Broutman. He says, there's so much discussion about the elections of 1800 and beyond. What I want to know is, did any of the actual ballots survive? And were there local elections and referendums on the ballots like there are today? No referenda. Uh, Referenda which is the Latin plural of referendum, and initiative and recall are innovations of the progressive era. Um, The progressive era, which we think of, say, from 1905 until 1930 or so, involved the Bull Moose campaign of Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Uh, It was actually known as the Progressive Party. 
uh, lots of reforms, women's suffrage, uh, uh, the eight-hour workday, uh, child labor laws, uh, worker safety laws, work, uh, worker uh, unemployment laws, etc., etc. Uh, these innovations came during the progressive era, and among the uh, the innovations in constitutionality were initiative, referendum, and recall. So initiative means that if the legislature won't do it, and in many cases they won't, the people can initiate the measure. They can actually craft legislation, and then there are mechanisms under which there's a statewide election to, to determine if that law is passed. Uh, recall, we just saw in California, also a progressive innovation, which says that if, if uh, there is a schnook or someone we don't like for whatever reason in office, we can recall that person. We can petition. If you get enough signatures on the petition, you can have a recall vote. And so you can undo an election by way of recall under certain circumstances. And the third is referendum. And that is that um, uh, the people um, see a law passed by the legislature uh, they don't like it for whatever reason or want to improve upon it, so then it's referred and there is uh, language is presented and the people uh, decide whether they're going to approve that uh, legislative uh, work or not. And so these are really, really, really important um, breakthroughs in democracy because at the time when these were done, the legislatures were seen as you know, beholden to special interests uh, that legislators were corrupt or cronyist, that they were not doing the, the hard work of reforming America, and that the people were going to have to engage in something like direct democracy from time to time to get certain things done. And so uh, you know, the, the legislatures of the various states don't particularly like initiative, referendum, or recall. In fact, in my own beloved North Dakota, the legislature tried to cut the legs out from under these initiatives. They did not get away with it. But uh, these are really important tools of democracy. And uh, California perhaps sometimes takes it a little too far. Uh, but uh, Jefferson, I think, would say err on the side of uh, power to the people. And lastly, we have a question from Nicholas Crownover, who, by the way, listens on 89.9 KRPS Pittsburgh State University, Pittsburgh, Kansas. He writes, compare and contrast Thomas Jefferson's view on standing armies and how would he view today's militia movement's desire to use firearms to take over the government? First of all, I, I've been to Pittsburgh, uh, Kansas, and I, I'm eager to go back. Uh, it was a wonderful journey a few years ago um, uh, to the college there. Uh, Jefferson and most of the founding fathers feared standing armies, in other words, a permanent military establishment. Of course, we have one. We have a permanent army. We have a permanent Marines, permanent Navy, permanent Coast Guard, permanent Air Force. Uh, we, we have exactly what the Founding Fathers most feared. They feared them because, A, they're very expensive, and B, that when you create a permanent military establishment, it either leads you into war or turns its, uh, its violence against the people themselves. And they had seen, of course, innumerable instances of this in the history of, of Europe. And so there was a very deep distaste for a permanent military establishment. Well, that meant militias. You, you have Minutemen, a, a people's army, a citizen's army. And that's why the Second Amendment was added to the Constitution so that the people who engage in the citizen's army can have the wherewithal of being a militia, which is to have the right 
to keep and bear arms. We've distorted um, the historic meaning of the Second Amendment almost beyond recognition. So today we don't really have the militia system that the founding fathers had in mind. And some of them, by the way, Hamilton and Washington thought that a militia system was a, was a big mistake anyway. So what to do? The militias of today are not legitimate, in my opinion, because they exist outside of an already existing military establishment. In other words, they're not defending the country. Um, they're sort of um, self-selected paramilitary forces, many of them uh, with a very slender understanding of due process or the Constitution. Um, and so, generally speaking, today's militias are a nuisance. And although they claim to have constitutional legitimacy, um, they don't because the Constitution has been um, transformed almost beyond recognition. You know, we now have the largest military in the world. We have 700 or more bases around the world. Uh, the United States is an imperial power. Um, and the idea that we would have a Minuteman a militia system in an age of cruise missiles and, and, and nuclear weapons is ludicrous. Uh, but one of, the, one of the terrible mistakes that people are making today is to try to cling to some fantasy notion of the Founding Fathers and take us back 250 years. But remember, that was a three-mile-per-hour world, and the idea of a cell phone would have been regarded as flat-on magic by anybody living in that era. Very good, sir. That completes our list of questions for the week. Indeed, and thank you for moderating them. I love our listener questions. Please send more. They've all been terrific. What a delight to be able to engage with a, a broad American public on questions uh, that matter. I so appreciate all of that. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.